We have to collaborate with other specialities. We need other specialities to provide our patients with high quality service. So this network between hemophilia treatment center and other uh, wards or hospitals is extremely important to provide patients with this, yes, high quality service. Yeah, I agree. And, and because if you look at this survey, really, you know, the collaboration we are having in Europe made really this survey possible because we ask people sometimes difficult questions. Our colleagues, all of us, we had to be highly transparent about what we do, about, you know, the problems that we have. And this is because this hemophilia, this is now a large, huge family of physicians and health treaters who share the same genuine interest for that disease. And I think this is great. And uh, we share this concern about attracting your colleagues, but they should know that if they come to the hemophilia world, they will be more than welcome and they will really enjoy sharing our enthusiasm and dynamism. So, uh, and also, I think this is what we try to do, you know, with this survey and also during this podcast. Hemostasis Connect is an initiative of core to ed This podcast is supported by an educational grant from Takeda. The views in this podcast are the personal opinions of the experts. They do not necessarily represent the views of the experts' organisation or the rest of the Hemostasis Connect group. For experts' disclosures on conflict of interest, please go to hemostasisoncoretoend.com. Hello and welcome to this podcast. My name is Cedric Hermans. I'm head of the Division of Hematology at the Clinic Universitaire Saint-Luc in Brussels, Belgium. I'm also an active member of the World Federation of Hemophilia and Editor-in-Chief of the Hemophilia Journal. So it's a great pleasure to welcome you to this podcast. And now I would like to give Jersey the opportunity to introduce himself. Jersey. Thank you, Cedric. My name is Jerzy Windega. I am a hematologist. I work in the Institute of Hematology and Transfusion Medicine in Warsaw, Poland, and I have the pleasure and honor to be the head of the Department of Hemostasis Disorders and Internal Medicine, which is also an important center for management of people with inherited bleeding disorders in Poland. So let me introduce to this uh, podcast. In this episode, Cedric and I will discuss the changing paradigms of hemophilia care. We will share our experience with caring for patients with hemophilia in our countries, Belgium and Poland, and how this has evolved over the last decades. But we will also discuss the results of a survey we have recently published in Therapeutic Advances in Hematology. The paper was developed within the European Collaborative Hemophilia Network, and co-authored by our distinguished colleagues, Anna Boban, Irena Zupan, and Naim O'Connell. The aim of this survey was to determine whether the paradigms of hemophilia care in Europe have changed with the introduction of novel treatment options. Our discussion will be divided into three parts, past, present, and future of hemophilia management. But... Before we go into the outcomes of the survey, Cedric, can you tell us a bit about the background to this project and maybe try to answer this question, why is it so important that this type of research is done? Well, thank you, Jersey. I think it's a very important question. You know, we have to realize that hemophilia care has changed so much 
over the last uh, few decades, especially over the last two decades. And uh, you remember, Jersey, when we first met, that was more than 20 years ago, it was totally different from today. You know, the discussions we had, the challenges we had were totally different. And since things have changed so much, I think it's there was a real need to, you know, re-explore the current situation. Because when preparing this podcast, I realized that 20 years ago, my own center was, uh, you know, much smaller. It was uh, much less structure. And also, I was a little bit isolated at that time. I was in my center. I had some interactions with colleagues, but very limited. No, the environment is totally different. We interact a lot with colleagues uh, across Europe and even globally. And also, the treatment options were totally different. I remember at that time, recombinant uh, factor 8 and factor 9 were, yes, they became available at that time. So they were widely used. And clearly, our intention was to provide our patient with safe product from an infectious point of view. And also prophylaxis was increasingly popular, but it was really demanding and, and difficult for our patients. And I also remember some other issues, like many of our patients had to undergo surgery, major orthopedic surgery, inhibitors were a major issue. And also our patients were also totally different. We were different, but our patients were also different. They probably were a little bit less empowered. The social media were not there. And um, also we had much less interest for women and girls for with hemophilia and also comorbidity. So clearly things have changed and we will discuss later on how things are today, but they are so different. So it, it, it was nice to stop a little bit and, and look to what has been achieved and, you know, look at the current situation. Jersey, you live in, in Poland, so the distance is not that huge, but uh, still there are differences. What was it like? When you first started treating patients with hemophilia 20, 30 years ago. Yeah, that was a really fascinating time for us because, you know, I started to work in my hospital in the beginning of 1990s. As you remember, Poland changed the economic system just, you know, two, three years earlier. And therefore, the situation of, among others, people with hemophilia was really not very optimistic. At that time, I remember our patient had uh, severe arthropathy. The bleeding complications occurred very frequently and uh, unfortunately they led very often to death of our patients. Surgery was, frankly speaking, accessible only in very few centers and ITI was just uh, not accessible at all in my country. However, I said that was fascinating time because the beginning of 1990s was the time when we started to switch from cryoprecipitate, from fresh frozen plasma to lyophilized clotting factor concentrates. So I was the young doctor who started to treat the patient with these new products. Of course, at the time, all well plasma derived. Nevertheless, the difference between, you know, fresh frozen plasma, cryoprecipitate, when the patients had to stay at hospital for infusions and use of uh, lyophilized clotting factor concentrates was so huge. I mean, we, I already observed that the patients, you know, they feel that uh, there is uh, change for better, for good in their lives. So that was really uh, something that I remember very well even today. And then very briefly, just a couple of years later, we started home therapy. So we started to uh, provide our patients with concentrates to infuse at home. That was very important progress in, uh, in management of people with hemophilia. And then we started, uh, of course, to perform more surgical procedures. We also started to uh, offer 
immune tolerance induction in our patients with uh, inhibitors. But the real breakthrough in Poland occurred in 2008, when for the first time, primary prophylaxis was offered to children with severe hemophilia. That was a real breakthrough. I, I remember very well this year, I remember how it was important to increase the budget that had to be accepted, of course, by Ministry of Health, that budget for hemophilia increased. And thanks to that, we could offer the youngest patients primary prophylaxis and then secondary, tertiary prophylaxis. And today, of course, the situation of uh, Polish patients with hemophilia is much, much better. So we need to admit that uh, yourself and myself, we are really lucky and fortunate hemophilia physicians. We could witness major changes and contribute to these changes. But clearly the situation is different today. And uh, that's why yourself, myself and our colleagues, we felt that it was needed to look at the situations globally in Europe. So could you explain, you know, how our survey was built up and conducted throughout Europe? Sure, Cedric. So in uh, 2021, the European Collaborative Hemophilia Network conducted a survey in 19 centers in 17 countries in Europe and the Middle East. Importantly, the number of patients treated in centers participated in this survey is close to 6,000. So we may say that the results of this survey reflect the clinical practice in the management of hemophilia in a significant European uh, region. The survey contained three key sections. First was demographics and organization. Second, current challenges, but of course also opportunities. And then future directions. So Cedric, if you look at the data, what are the key challenges in hemophilia care at the moment? Well, thank you for this question, because honestly, what I did this morning, I read our paper again, and I need to tell people who are listening to us today that this paper is freely accessible. And uh, when reading it again, you know, I realized that uh, it's a nice paper. Sometimes you're really proud of, of your papers. And, and this one is, is nice because it summarizes so many changes. And I think it's quite inspiring. And it could also pave the way to important developments. But if I want to uh, quickly emphasize some of our major findings, the first one would be that, well, clearly major advances have been made if you compare to the situation even 10 years ago. But still, you know, we have some, some challenges, like funding could be a problem. Hemophilia treatment centers are currently well-funded, uh, mainly by their government, but still funding remains an issue. Collaboration between centers has improved a lot in different ways by producing together guidelines and uh, sharing um, experience and also contributing to registries. So these are really good news. Treatments, so I'm sure we'll discuss this later on again. So new treatments are available, including, you know, the extend Half-Life Factor 8, Factor 9, and also non-replacement therapies. So they are increasingly available, but their access might remain limited uh, in some centers. So that could be an issue. And then uh, an important finding too, is that we increasingly need the support of labs, you know, or laboratory colleagues. I'm sure that some of them are listening to us today. Well, they are very important. They help us to treat patients adequately, especially when it comes down to these new treatments. 
that really require a great level of expertise because we need to monitor how blood coagulation is affected by this new treatment. And then we also realize that although, you know, both of us, we are heading our hemophilia treatment center, we are in fact orchestrating large teams of people. So we are well staffed, but we realize in this um, survey, and this is an observation that has been made in many centers that there might be problems in staffing in, in the future and that we need to attract uh, new colleagues, young doctors. We also realize that clinical trials are important for all of us. We, so we have a major interest in clinical trials. We do everything possible to you know, support and facilitate the implementations of trials, but only 10% of our patients are in fact enrolled in these trials. Some centers are more efficient, but most could probably do better. Acute and emergency care of hemophilia patients, so that has been well improved. All of us, we offer these important services, multidisciplinary team, well-established, and I think this is a great news with nice transition programs for children when they reach uh, adulthood. I think this is important, although yourself, myself, we also have problems about adequate staffing. So we have people, but we might need more people and we need to attract more people to consolidate our teams in the future. Prophylaxis will adopt it. It's not yet 100%. And something that we realize is that for managing the musculoskeletal complications of our patients, maybe we need more physiotherapists. So this is uh, an observation that we made, and we will certainly discuss this. And in terms of uh, outcome assessment, I think this is this is good. Although many of us use different tools, so maybe we should harmonize this in the future. But I think these are some of the critical findings of our paper. But you might uh, read and learn more about, about them by going through our paper. Jersey, because this is my own reading and interpretation of this huge survey. We could repeat it in five years, but we won't do this every year. But if we, at, at this time, you know, what's your take on, on this? And what what do you recognize as having a major impact on, on your center and your practice? Thank you very much, Cedric. First of all, I fully agree with your thoughts, opinions on this survey. And frankly speaking to me, the most important challenge that we face today is cost of, of therapies. You know, uh, Poland is a good example of uh, how cost shape the treatment because we use, of course, clotting factor concentrates, but unfortunately only standard half-life. We do not have access to extended half-life products only because of cost differences. In Poland, the difference is so big that uh, it was uh, decided to keep to standard half-life products, which is, of course, not welcome by healthcare professionals, but unfortunately, we have to accept that. So I think that the problem or the uh, issue of high cost of therapy is still valid and uh, is still a problem, not only outside European Union, but even inside European Union. Then I would say adequate staffing. And what I see right now is the problem with personnel, but pers particularly with respect to young doctors entering uh, the field of hemophilia. I, I, I have uh, such impression that people who are interested in hematology, they focus more on, not on benign, but rather on uh, malignant hematology. Therefore, we should do something to attract people 
to hemophilia. We know very well, Cedric, that hemostasis is a fantastic discipline, that this is not, in fact, only hemophilia, even though hemophilia is normally something that you start with when you start to work in a hematological world. But then you can build, you know, huge knowledge on uh, hemostasis, disorders of hemostasis. This is fantastic starting point. And this is also, you know, there are very few specialists in this field in many countries, because I learned also from my colleagues from other countries that this is a real issue. So we should do something in the future uh, to change that. I mean, uh, I believe that hemostasis is so attractive. We should try to attract young people, show them how hemostasis can be attractive. With respect to hemophilia, of course, needless to say, I mean, we observe what's going on with new therapies in this area. So definitely there is something that should attract uh, young doctors. And finally, time limitations. I fully agree with you because you also, also mentioned that uh, this is a challenge that we face at present. Of course, for research, but also for, I would say, daily work. We would need more time dedicated to our patients. Unfortunately, huge bureaucracy is a reason for uh, limiting time spending with our patients. And this is at least problem in my center, but uh, unfortunately, I think that this is also a problem in other uh, centers. So these were the three, in my opinion, biggest or greatest uh, challenges that we face today. Well, I also share your concern about the cost of hemophilia care, but uh, this period is really, you know, fascinating. It's really, some people wrote that this is a golden age for hemophilia. We are fascinated by the, the, the innovation, but not only the innovations. What's really changing in my view is that now we can offer our patients with a large range of treatment uh, options so we can individualize the treatment. And this is totally different because, you know, if you remember 20 years ago, the only option was fix those prophylaxis three times a week. And that was it. So that really left our patients with very limited freedom. No, we have multiple options. We can also empower our patients. We can listen to our patient. We can make sure that the patient have access to the treatment that really meets their needs, expectations. So this is really unique and we have new ambitions. And when you see the percentage of patients currently on prophylaxis, still, you know, we should reach 100%, but uh, we are not that far from that. So things are changing. But I agree with you, you know, we still have other challenges for the next uh, couple of years. Clearly, you know, we will be facing a highly heterogeneous population of patients. When you look at the waiting room, you have very young patient with no, no joint damage at all uh, on maybe on subcut treatment doing perfectly well, and then you have older patients with all the complications of hemophilia. So it might be a little bit difficult to manage all the patients at the same time. You, you need a lot of expertise too, because these this treatments are, are quite complex. Absolutely. And we, we shouldn't be in isolation. I mean, we hematologists who deal with hemophilia, we have to collaborate. You also mentioned that this is very important. We have to collaborate with other specialities. We need other specialities to provide our patients with high quality service. I treat only adults. So I see every day patients with hemophilia with concomitant disorders and diseases that absolutely require uh, treatment from other doctors uh, of other specialities. So this network between hemophilia treatment center and other uh, wards or hospitals is extremely important to provide patients with this, yes, high quality service. Yeah, I agree. And 
And because if you look at this survey, really, you know, the collaboration we are having in Europe made really this survey possible because we ask people sometimes difficult questions. Our colleagues, all of us, we had to be highly transparent about what we do, about, you know, the problems that we have. And this is because this hemophilia, this is now a large, huge family of physicians and health treaters who share the same genuine interest for that disease. And I think this is great. And uh, we share this concern about attracting your colleagues, but they should know that if they come to the hemophilia world, they will be more than welcome and they will really enjoy sharing our enthusiasm and dynamism. So, uh, and also, I think this is what we try to do, you know, with this survey and also during this podcast, clearly. Uh, and for, for those of you who want to learn a little bit more about the current situation, you know, and what needs to be done also in terms of implementing new practices or even, you know, more research, because I think this is also one of the merits of this paper is that it shows where more research is needed. So uh, maybe, Jersey, I think we are close to the end. No, what would be uh, your final conclusion and message to our friends and colleagues uh, listening to us today? There are, of course, some challenges that I see as a link to the future or in this, in this field. But on the other hand, there is uh, great opportunities. I mean, novel therapies you mentioned before, therapies that I given subcutaneously instead of uh, intravenous infusions, frequent intravenous infusions that already has huge impact on patient's quality of life. Also, I believe that we will extend the uh, proportion of patients receiving prophylaxis, not only to 100% in patients with severe hemophilia, but also we extend to patients with moderate and even mild hemophilia. Because I believe that some patients with mild and moderate hemophilia really are in need of long-term prophylaxis. We already observed in, in, in my country that some patients with moderate hemophilia suffers from more bleeds than patients with severe hemophilia on prophylaxis. So we change the phenotype of the disease in patients with severe hemophilia. We shouldn't forget about mild and moderate hemophilia. Of course, challenges are associated. You also mentioned that, that the challenges, of course, are lab monitoring of novel therapies, also some side effects that we observe. I would say generally, you know, the mechanism of action of novel therapies is very interesting, is exciting. But on the other hand, we have to learn more and more about the mechanism of actions and also some potential dangers that can occur. We have to understand really in depth, in detail, the mechanism of action. So how I would conclude my thoughts based on our discussion, on our survey, our uh, my experience in this field, I would say that the most uh, important is that hemophilia treatment centers are a source of concentrated knowledge and expertise on hemophilia. And definitely, hemophilia treatment centers will be required, needed to also translate some uh, achievements in the field of hemostasis in labs uh, to patients. So this is, uh, for me, one big conclusion. Uh, and the second is the challenge, the challenge how to keep up with all these, you know, developments in this field, how to implement the innovations in the field. We need uh, adequate staffing. We need education for ourselves. We have to learn a lot. For instance, gene therapy is another uh, great opportunity at the same time challenge how to perform gene therapy, how to select patients, how to provide them with this, uh, with this treatment option, keeping in mind that we don't know everything about gene therapy and we have to still learn a lot about this treatment option. 
Well, I think you summarized things beautifully and we, we are really close and we build up the survey and this paper together. So I think you beautifully summarized what the future holds for us. So uh, Jersey, I'd like to thank you and uh, hope you enjoyed that podcast and uh, hope to see you again in the future. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye-bye. This Hemostasis Connect podcast was brought to you by CourtoEd Independent Medical Education. For more information, please visit courtoed.com and select Hemostasis.